Welcome to Life Happens, where Texans come to protect their legacy and prepare for the second half of life. Join your host, Attorney Kim Hegwood with Hegwood Law Group and our weekly guest as we navigate the challenges that emerge as life happens. Now here's your host, Kim Hegwood. Good morning. Welcome to Life Happens with me, Kim Hegwood, and our very special guest today is Dr. Aaron White. Good morning. Hi, Kim. Thanks for having me today. Not a problem. We're going to talk about stuff that's meaningful to all our listeners, um, and we're going to talk about when caregiving calls. And so because most people most people don't expect it, um, even though signs are there, they, they tend to not really, uh, I think, not really to expect it in some some aspects of it. And so, but you got a new book about it. I do. Yes. I wrote When Caregiving Calls, Guidance as You Care for a Parent, Spouse, or Aging Relative to help families that are in that exact situation, Kim. So when you talk in your book, you talk about, you know, resilience and, and resilience is, you know, it's a word that, you know, you're like, wow, okay. And um, tell us about it. How, how do caregivers develop resilience? Well, resilience is the ability to overcome adverse conditions and circumstances, right? And when caregiving enters into a family, usually it's because of an, uh, some kind of health condition that has emerged for, a care, for the care receiver. And so when we talk about developing caregiver resilience, it really is a process of understanding the emerging roles that come with a caregiving situation honoring historic family relationships while also fulfilling the new role of caregiver and confronting some of the hard realities that are present in the situation. There are things sometimes that you don't want to think about, but you need to think about in order to plan. But then also it involves recognizing and cultivating the rewards that are probably unexpected that you invariably find in the caregiving situation. And finally, I talk about uh, practice, practicing for readiness so that you can develop the capacity to deliver the tasks that your loved one needs when it comes to caregiving. I think back, you know, when you said rewards, the first thing I pictured was um, how close my grandfather and I got, you know, I mean, we were always close, but not near like it was when it was just, you know, him and I, and, you know, and just taking care of him after my grandmother passed away. And so, you know, so I learned a lot of things about him. I had no idea. Um, you know, so I think sometimes just talking sometimes really helps to, you know, really gather, you know, family histories, things like that, just things that were important to him. I had no idea, you know, uh, information about things that had happened to him, you know, what, what he did during the war, you know, things no one really even knew. So it was, it was, uh, for that aspect of it, it was awesome so much. And so, and, um, but, you know, a lot of family members are not, are not equipped or they don't think they're equipped. And so how do they learn? you know, to, to be that caregiver, you know, for the loved one when they're, you know, when they're starting out, they're not sure if they can do it. Yeah, that's a great question, Kim. That is true. Many times families find themselves just completely unprepared to become, to assume the family caregiver role. And um, I actually just wrote a piece about this. Uh, the, it's called the pattern of caregiver development, but it's rooted in, in learning theory. 
And it really starts, first of all, with being, uh, just being present for your loved one is a decision that the family caregiver makes. And also in that being, you bring all of your, your traits, your personality, your love into the, the caregiving situation for your loved one. Second, it involves connecting with your loved one and uh, helping them despite some of their, their feelings of, of hopelessness or inadequacy or shame uh, that could arise with certain health conditions. Um, being able to connect with your loved one and show that love and show that attention. Uh, the third part of it really is just trying because every care receiver is different. Um, health conditions, health diagnoses, maybe they may fall within a particular diagnosis, but how those symptoms are manifested will vary from one person to another. And based on the symptoms and based on the circumstances and the preferences and the personality of the care receiver, that will dictate how you deliver care. And so you don't, you're not automatically endowed with a knowledge of how to do this stuff. And in fact, the needs of the care receiver will evolve and change over time. So the best that you can do is try. You're trying over and over again, practicing uh, to deliver on what your family member needs. And then next after that is adjusting. When you, you trial, it's trial and error. When you learn that something doesn't work, uh, you adjust and try again in a different way. And uh, hopefully you can fine tune how you're providing care to your loved one and, and then you recommit. So you're constantly recommitting to this relationship, recommitting to the role of being a caregiver, recommitting to being there and connecting and trying and adjusting over and over and over again. So for example, you may not know how to change an occupied bed or you, may not, you might not know how to transfer your loved one from the bed to the bedside commode or helping your loved one get in and out of a wheelchair. I mean, these are all things that you may not have ever experienced or done. The only way to learn how to do it is to try. And uh, I had to, uh, my grandfather was very surprised that um, I could make the bed with him in it, unmake it. Unmake it. <laughs> And uh, I laughed and said, your caregivers have nothing on me. I could do this. You know, he was so shocked that I could just roll him and, uh, yeah. him and you know, so and that was a lot of fun. But one of the things that we tell clients about all the time, you know, is, you know, finding good support groups, you know, helping, having other people share, you know, things that work for them and things like that. And so and you talk about the value of a good caregiver support group. And so why do you think it's important? I love caregiver support groups and caregiver book clubs, Kim. Um, caregiving can be a lonely road. You can really feel isolated. You can feel as if nobody really understands what you're going through. And with caregiver support groups, you find others who are facing similar situations and you realize that you're not alone. And through caregiver support groups, you, you can mutually support one another. You have a, a built-in fan club. You also can share resources and knowledge and learn from each other. Um, <clears throat> caregiver support groups can be oriented based on geography within your, your local community. They could be found online. Online has a, a lot of caregiver support groups now. And I have 
seen over the years that oftentimes these caregiver support groups, people come as strangers and they develop deep, uh, profound friendships through the the shared experience and the shared trials associated with caregiving for a loved one. And even after the loved one has, has passed on, often those friendships remain and those connections to caregiver support groups remain as well uh, long after their, their loved one has, has been deceased. Yeah, we've seen that a lot too with, with some of our clients. And so uh, what about self-care? I want you to tell our listeners something that it's going to make a difference because we preach all the time about you got to take care of yourself. So I need some inspiration right now. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, self-care is super important. I feel like it's kind of a buzzword right now. And I want to talk about two aspects of self-care. The first aspect of self-care is, um, I think a little bit overused, to be honest, it's, it's pampering. It's saying, oh, I need to go out and, you know, get a massage or um, things like that. And, you know, th those things have their place. Um, it, you need to do things to be able to recharge your batteries and give you the add fuel to your tank so that you can keep going in the caregiver role. Another part of self-care is recognizing that you might need help in the role. And this one's a little bit harder, I think, for people to acknowledge. It's okay if you need to go see a counselor because you're struggling with this whole caregiving situation. It's okay to go to a caregiver support group. Um, another part of this that kind of re relates to it is learning how to be a caregiver, educating yourself about the caregiver role and so that's all part of improving yourself so that you can be ready to deliver what your loved one needs. So I think that without self-care, you know, they use the oxygen mask analogy for the airplane, right? You have to put your, your mask on before you can put the mask on someone else. And that's so important in caregiving. And when I owned my home care company, I saw family caregivers that would sacrifice themselves for their loved one. And they see, you know, the needs of their loved one are so obvious. You know, they have a terminal condition. The caregiver does not. And so the caregiver, the family caregiver says, well, who am I to think about myself when my loved one is, has this terminal condition? And again, just for you to be your best self and to be your best caregiver, you need to you need to pay attention to these things. So how, what's the best way for a, um, a support group or a book club to use your book and, and make the most impact? Well, Kim, when I was writing When Caregiving Calls, Guidance as You Care for a Parent, Spouse, or Aging Relative, I kept thinking about the family caregiver just the average family caregiver and what do they need to know? And I wrote 18 chapters based on experiences that are common in caregiving and bits of knowledge and insights that will help those family caregivers. But at the same time, I, I as I was writing it, I thought I wanted to do something that did a little bit more than inform family caregivers. I was aiming to write a book that could potentially transform their caregiving experience. 
And this is where my, my doctoral degree in adult learning comes into play. We know that intentional reflection is a gateway to learning. And so at the end of each of those 18 chapters, the reader you know, learns something or focuses on something, one aspect of caregiving. But at the end of each chapter, there are questions for reflection. And the questions for reflection are designed to prompt the family caregiver to think deeply about what they just read and apply it to their individual caregiving life with the idea that by doing so, they will gain some insights as to how they can improve their situation. So when I, when a, an early reader of the manuscript, a family caregiver, she said, you know, I liked the questions for reflection, but I didn't like the questions for reflection. And I asked her what she meant. And she said, well, I, I guess there were some things that I just did not want to think about. And then she paused and she said, but, but I know and I knew that I had to think about them so they were good. And that she summed up why those questions for reflection are in there. There are a lot of difficult things that you have to confront in caregiving. But um, sometimes I think that family caregivers themselves have access to the answers or the solutions to their challenges. Sometimes they just need to have the right questions. And so some caregiver support groups now have actually been using when caregiving calls in their uh, routine uh, meetings. So they, they read a chapter or two chapters. And then when they reconvene, they, they say, okay, we read these, this chapter uh, and they just open up to the questions for reflection. And those are the discussion prompts for their support group. And I've had just honestly, Kim, some, some amazing feedback from these caregiver support groups. I did not, I was not thinking about caregiver support groups when I wrote When Caregiving Calls, but hearing the feedback from these support groups that have used it as a tool and as a basis for their conversations, uh, it's just been very, very gratifying to know that it's helping people. I think the, I think it's so important to kind of address, you know, all the different issues when it comes to caregiving. And so um, I would imagine that as painful as it is sometimes to answer those questions, uh, clarity is probably something that, uh, you know, really helps, uh, you know, just getting clear, uh, I think is very impactful. And so, all right. So if somebody wants to get your book, how do they find it? Well, they can find When Caregiving Calls anywhere that books are sold, online or in a bricks and mortar bookstore. And some people like to go to their local independent bookstore and you can get it there. Um, you have my website there on display, Kim. It's caregivingkinetics.com. And also you can contact me on email. I do go out and speak to groups. And I would welcome the opportunity to speak to, to your listeners in, in a caregiver support group or another setting. Awesome. And I keep that in mind. So we'll have to get you get that taken care of. And so, all right, I just want to thank you for being on the show today and you have a great day. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for having me. You take care. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Life Happens with Kim Hegwood. Be sure to tune in every Thursday at 10 a.m. wherever you listen to your podcast as we navigate through the challenges that emerge as life happens. The content of this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship or constitute attorney-client privilege, legal, medical, financial, or any other professional advice. 